Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, Sean Jacobs reviews the complicated legacy of Winnie Mandela in the wake of her death, and Forrest Hilton outlines the politics of Colombia as it prepares for a presidential election on May 27. First, South Africa. On April 2nd, Winnie Mandela, the widow of Nelson, died at the age of 81. When the two divorced in 1992, she began to refer to herself as Winnie Mandikazela Mandela, but the renaming didn't quite stick. Although Nelson was the more prominent of the pair, she was a substantial political figure in her own right. She was widely revered from the time of Nelson's jailing in 1962 well into the mid-1980s. Her reputation took a hit when she became associated with revolutionary violence, notably the practice of necklacing those perceived as traitors to the movement, thrusting a gasoline-soaked tire around their torso and setting it aflame, resulting in a protracted and horrible death. That's the part of her history the right wants people to remember. But there was a lot more to her than that. Here's Sean Jacobs, a professor at the New School in Manhattan and founder of the Africa is a Country website, who grew up in South Africa, to evaluate her legacy. Sean Jacobs. Winnie Mandela died the other day, uh, a woman <laughs> with a contradictory reputation. Let's just start with a summary evaluation. What, what do you think of the, the long career of Winnie Mandela? You can sort of divide her life into, um, you know, different periods. And I think that corresponds to how she then gets remembered, like on which side often you come out in terms of her legacy. She's from the Transkei. She's, she, she grew up like most people who grew up, black people who grew up in rural areas. It was a, at that point still a reserve. It later becomes a homeland, but very poor. She goes to the city where she um, works as a, where she studies social work, meets Nelson Mandela. And with that, I think she gets sort of thrust into into the political limelight. And, and she was in her early 20s at this point, right? And he was about 40-ish? I think some people say he was like 16 years older than her. And and when you when people say like she then gets sort of thrust into the limelight, essentially what happens to her is she marries Nelson Mandela. And I think within one year of their marriage, he's already on the run. And then he gets arrested. And then uh, by 1962, he's already on Robben Island. He then gets, you know, taken from Robben Island where he gets tried in the Ravonia trial and he gets sentenced to 27 years in prison. So what then happens, and I think this is this is what's interesting about Winnie Mandela and what, what is both commendable and that, and that also kind of um, points to like the sad legacy of, at the same time, a kind of very sad legacy of Winnie Mandela. The initial period from, I would say, the 19, throughout the 1960s, after he goes to prison in 1964, through the 1970s, up until um, the mid-1980s, Winnie Mandela essentially, without caricaturing her or, or you know, putting on a pedestal, but she she's, she she becomes like uh, almost a de facto leader of the of the resistance in South Africa for long periods. The most visible leader, the most visible representative of of the ANC inside the country, of her husband's legacy, and she also manages to very laudably put her life on the line, be be in front, like being identified with the with the 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 young. Um, activists of the Black Consciousness Movement, like like publicly appearing at their court cases when she, you know when when she's actually under banning orders. That when people started calling her the mother of the nation, that's particularly during the 1976 um, okay. student uprising against uh, uh, involving education. I mean, manifested as a protest against Afrikaans. She helped form what was known as the the Soweto. Um, crisis committee, the government essentially blames her for the violence. They want to single out, but, you know, it doesn't stick. And she also, during that period, she's subjected to, like, multiple house arrests, bannings. She, in the early 1970s, she gets, she you know, she's sent into solitary, solitary confinement for, I think, about 13 months. Uh, this is during a year and a half when she's in prison without talking to anybody. She's tortured, most probably also sexually assaulted, her house gets disrupted. They when, it, when when a banning order ends, they start a new one. When they put her under house arrest and she beats that, she beats that. Then they just put up another one. They why didn't they just throw her to Robin Island and be done with her? It was always unclear how to figure out the motives or the operations of how apartheid operated. I think I think they suppose by harassing her and breaking her spirit, they would they would kind of you know break the resistance against apartheid. But the thing about her personality was that she was she was not someone to be cowed. And I think as a result, they sort of like focus on it. And here's where the years when you ask about her legacy over the long run, here's where things changed through the uh, mid 1960s 
through the 1970s until the early 1980s, which is when she got banished to a place called Brantford, which is in another province of South Africa at the time, the Free State, which is which is the same province now. Um, and they send her there to like, you know, take her out of Soweto because they feel that if she's not in Soweto, then there won't be then there won't be any protest. But what happens for what happens for the struggle for uh, fortuitously and, and 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 bad for the regime, she radicalizes the people in Brantford. So that reputation of this. So where does that reputation of this Winnie Mandela, who stands up to the state, uh, who becomes a representative of her husband and the representative of the ANC inside the country and the representative of sort of people's popular energy, particularly of the youth, come from? It comes from that. It's when she goes back to Soweto, when the banning order ends. And I mean, she also kind of like, I think she, at first she just went back to Soweto. Again, there's a great scene in a, in a new film that's on Netflix called Winnie, where you see her like on a highway, just confronting police and saying, bugger you, I'm going back to Soweto and like pushing white cops, which is something that nobody, like black people generally wouldn't do at that time in South Africa. So that's what people remember her as. But so she goes to Soweto and that's when things change. At her house in Soweto, which she, which she lived with Nelson Mandela, she brings a group of men, who, who young men in particular, who, she, who forms a football club. They sort of become the bodyguards. They start to attack people. Later on, there's like kidnappings. There's a murder. There's, there's torture of people. I think when they remember that early Winnie Mandela, and, I have, and, I, and I'll, make, I'll say why I say that in a minute, is that, that during that period, the people in Soweto, they turn on Winnie Mandela. The, 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 the sort of internal wing, I mean, of course, they were autonomous, but they were linked to the ANC, the UDF, the United Democratic Front, which is at that point, most most black people, most people, progressives in South Africa, they're identifying with that movement. That movement sort of publicly disowns her. They ask the ANC to intervene. So by by the late 1980s, the, the reputation of that earlier one in Winnie Mandela doesn't exist anymore. And so after that, the early 1990s, when 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 Nelson Mandela, you know, comes out of prison, the ANC is unbanned, um, they come back to South Africa, uh, and and all the sort of political energy, all that popular political energy of the UDF and all these other formations, they become part of the ANC. Everybody's getting ready for elections. Winnie Mandela becomes an ANC official, but she gets implicated in corruption at the ANC. She gets fired by Mandela. He divorces her. She makes a comeback as a member of Parliament, um, but she never turns up in Parliament. Uh, she gets paid a salary, but doesn't turn up. She gets fired as a government minister. So she's there and people sort of like revere her for the early activity, but they also remember this terrible period. But what happens is that there's a there's a change that happens in South Africa. The ANC, after, if you want, like two decades, people see the ANC as failing them. The ANC is now associated with corruption, with neoliberalism. And so Winnie Mandela now, I think, makes a comeback as more as a symbol rather than as a real person. It's, it's different kind of constituencies then try to own her. And this is, I think, how she operates now, even in, in death, which is the, the, the main group um, that, that tags onto Winnie Mandela and try to say that Winnie Mandela represents us or we represent for Winnie Mandela is essentially sort of what is left of what is was the left in the ANC, because the left becomes disorganized, you know, because they all got sort of co-opted by Zuma. Um, and it's that left that, that was kind of a left or a nationalist left inside the ANC that becomes the Economic Freedom Front. And they kind of resurrect this image of the, that Winnie Mandela of the late 1960s throughout the 70s and the early 1980s. And that's the Winnie Mandela, the defiant Winnie Mandela, the Winnie Mandela that stand up to the state, because that's that's the mode that the, the EFF operates in, that they defiant, you know, they stand up to the ANC, they stand up to whiteness. Secondly, students, the students that in 2015 begin to make noise about decolonizing, as they would put it, the university, about these sort of white statues, about the curriculum, and, and crucially about public education, Winnie Mandela also becomes an avatar, a symbol for them. Even you can also now argue, it, she also becomes, in a way, after, with the troubles around Zuma and the ANC getting ready for an election next year in 2019, the ANC also needs to, like, they need something also to organize around, and that, that memory of that Winnie Mandela, the one before 1980, 85, 86, that's the one that they also want to get. And I think this is this is this is what I think is the legacy of Winnie Mandela. That at some level, there's that early one Winnie Mandela, which is this like you know f fighter, this resistance figure, um, and that's that's what people are trying. When people are sort of doing this kind of I would say ideological work now on the internet, on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever, uh, you know this kind of like 
quick hot takes about Winnie Mandela. I think when they do this kind of like reaction and to defend her, that's what they that's what they're trying to defend. And they're defending her against the right. They're defending her against the right, you know, basically reduces her legacy to the 80s, to the late 80s. Let's go back to the Winnie of the um, before the mid 1980s. Had she achieved considerable you know, prestige and leadership prowess on her own? She wasn't just trading on her husband's prestige at that point, right? No, I think she'd become she'd become like a, a political leader in her own right. I mean, as I said, when Mandela and others went to prison, the ANC went through some kind of internal crisis, and then the ANC regrouped by the end of that decade when they had a conference in Tanzania, and they then announced that they would they would conduct an armed struggle. Um, they would become like, you know, a much more sort of radical uh, movement aligned to like the Soviet Union, the, that version of the, of the, of the left. Um, but they, they, they had become very removed from South Africa. And in that context, you saw Steve Biko um, and Black Consciousness um, emerging. And, and then they, I think, provide the impetus for like the struggles of 1976. But the thing about Winnie Mandela is that Winnie Mandela, I think, uh, almost if you know that phrase, like she, she had an ear to the ground. She understood that politics was changing. She tapped into these energies of these young people. Um, and she managed to keep Mandela's kind of name alive within South Africa. Because people forget the, the ANC was banned in South Africa. You couldn't read any documents. You couldn't quote the ANC. You couldn't carry their flag. But, you know, Winnie Mandela would, like, go in, in the outfits of the ANC. And, and crucially, she was, like, a very visible national leader. And I think it's partly because she was so, she was so combative. I wouldn't say she was the de facto leader. I saw something earlier today about a poll that was conducted while she was while she was in in Brantford when she was um, under 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 the banning order um, that um, she it was she was more she was she was one of the most popular uh, politicians in South Africa. I'm speaking with Sean Jacobs, New School professor and founder of the Africa Is a Country blog. And then in the 80s, uh, of course, the, her reputation uh, went uh, awry over things like necklacing. How do you read that period? What happened? There are different ways of kind of like how people now in hindsight, I think, talk about these things. The one is to say that it was there was a dirty war going on in South Africa. It was like a South American dirty war. You know, mass detentions, dead squads. Apartheid wasn't being fought by parliamentary rules. This was a this was terrible. This was an ugly war. So that so in a sense you could say like ugly wars results in kind of ugly tactics. The ANC also conducted its own um, excesses within it, within exile camps, censoring people. When when uh, uh, even Chris Hani, I think at some point had been arrested. Tap Palo Jordan was a very well-known ANC intellectual had been arrested at some point by the ANC, for, you know, for being for de- deviating from whatever the line was. But the thing what happened in Winnie Mandela's house? I mean, it's unclear like. How much of that was part of the part of the struggle? And you, they, people argue that yeah, the state had infiltrated her house. Uh, many of those people that committed those violent acts, they are, they were, they were informers. They were probably planted there by the state they, to to implicate her in kinds of violence. But it makes you still question like, why would Winnie Mandela allow that kind of activity if Winnie Mandela knew? That the, that the state or the police would look for any opportunity to discredit the struggle. Why would she let that happen in, in her house? And one theory is like, if you're fighting a dirty war, then you also start, um, you, you start engaging in, 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 in the same kind of tactics. Um, and when you kind of engage in those kind of tactics, then, then the, there's, a lot, there's a lot of blurring um, about what is good and bad. Now, this is why I'm saying I, I understand that it was a dirty war. I'm not saying that, and I understand that these were extraordinary circumstances, and I understand that, like, like apartheid didn't play by the rules. But I think it's still the 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 the, the argument that you can use to say, so be it. However, it was clear that by '87, '88, the community in Soweto had grown tired of what had been happening at Winnie Mandela's house. And that, pe- that this Mandela football club was terrorizing people to the extent they actually burned down her house. They burned down the house that Mandela had lived in with her uh, before he went to prison. And they, they were asking the ANC to intervene. The UDF, I mean, many of those UDF leaders, many of them, some of them in parliament now, um, and now that she passed away, they're not saying much of that when they've been interviewed on television. But at the time, they actually went and, and, and requested that the ANC, Oliver Tambo, in Lusaka, 
etc., sending people emissaries, you know, to to Robben Island, to Wendela, and asking that the ANC must intervene because it's a problem what she's doing. Now, was this gathering around her personality, or was there a, a, a substantial wing of the ANC that supported her tactics? At that time, my, I mean, I was I was in high school and and kind of um, entering entering university, and and of course, you know, you you sort of the kind of news that you get is either you getting the sort of very biased uh, uh, reporting that you're getting from from the media, who, who just didn't like Winnie Mandela anyway, um, and and. And and by their and you know from their estimation, if there had to be a struggle, the struggle had to be one that if you don't act like Martin Luther King Jr., well, which is also a caricature of Luther King Jr. in U.S. media, um, if you if you don't do like just nonviolent politics, then you would it just didn't work. And then secondly, um, you would she would be compared unfavorably to her husband, which of course he was operating in a in an environment in a controlled environment um, where he could react in a controlled way. Whereas she's acting in a in a in a space in which the rules are, in, are not clear, but I would I would argue that I think if if we claim and I and I think it's a, it's it, it it would be correct to say this that by the late 1980s the almost de facto representative of the people because remember there's nobody we, people can't vote um, is is at that time the United Democratic Front inside South Africa it's the Congress of South African Trade Unions and outside the country it's the ANC. Most of the leaders of those organizations had a problem with Winnie Mandela at that point. I, I don't remember most uh, most other leaders who were who were siding with her. I have to say this though: there were other leaders who also ran, who acted like warlords at that point in the struggle. There's a very famous leader, of course, Zulu Natal, uh, called Harry Kuala, who operated around the Peter Marisburg area. In Cape Town, there were there were that kind of politics also operating in some of the some of the informal settlements, squatter camps, and these were often because these people were engaged in proxy wars against um, groups, local black, but but the state called black and back violence, which is like these black groups were representing like the interests of the state, but looking after themselves too. So so these things were happening, but these were mostly men. And Winnie Mandela, what added to, I think, some of the reactions against Winnie Mandela is that Winnie Mandela was a woman and a woman was was acting in this way. And it was it was linked also to that kind of earlier Winnie Mandela, this kind of, you know, fighter, combative personality that didn't sit well in a, in a very sort of patriarchal political context. But I don't think that excused like what she was doing. And so let's talk then about recent years. What has she been doing, uh, you know, in recent years that the ANC's reputation has certainly declined, uh, its prestige has certainly declined. Um, what, what what was her political activities in recent years? After she had been fired as a as a cabinet minister, I think that happened in the um, in the in the um, late nineteen nineties, and then um, in the early two thousands, she was she was still operating sort of she was she was there, but she wasn't really a political factor. I would say she sort of made a comeback as the the anger against Thabo Mbeki grew over over his neoliberal policies. His, his AIDS denialism had something to do with with that, but but I don't think that was eventually that made him lose his job. I think it was mostly you had the unions, you had uh, you know various elements who thought that he had he had conducted a sort of a COVID war against his, against Jacob Zuma, who he considered a rival. And so people began to side with Jacob Zuma. I would say that Winnie Mandela also became sort of part of that. And so given that Winnie Mandela also, during that same time, what Winnie Mandela would do is like she, at, 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 uh, again, you could argue, was it convenient or was it sincere? But she knew when to turn up in places where either there was like a squatter fire or where people didn't have proper houses. So Winnie Mandela was a kind of figure who would turn up in those spaces and so solidarity with people. And so by the time the, and, and as I said, she would never turn up, but at the same time, she would never turn up in parliament. You know, she was growing old. She was staying in Soweto. Her health wasn't always that great, but I would say she made a political comeback when the the economic freedom fighters, which is the the, the movement of Julius Malema, these are the people that wear the red uh, uniforms um, that have a sort of a very kind of like it's pantomime politics. They they would in public and particularly in parliament, they would go for Jacob Zuma about his about the excesses of his his government, like the fact that how he used government money to improve his houses, um, his relationships, uh, how how he compromised the state with his relationship with business people. And so that political party, um, they emerged as kind of like the sort of real critics of the ANC. 
and what, and she was very you know she was in, in in her late 70s by then but she would attend like birthday parties uh for some of these politicians she would uh, they would come and see her she would be photographed with them as the country was turning on Jacob Zuma and so they've now claimed her almost like as a patron saint of their movement they sort of rewrite ANC history by saying the ANC uh, the the this the Winnie Mandela represents that ANC that got that that was lost under they don't say Mbeki but they say Zuma and and which which uh, uh, Ramaphosa will be unable to repair because the damage has been done so much and so if you want to if you believe in the politics of Winnie Mandela which 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 you know sort of recast as kind of radical politics then you should vote uh, for the EFF at the same time the ANC because Winnie Mandela never never left the ANC. She, she stayed an ANC member, ANC member until the end. And, and, and when she passed away, and there was a press conference at the hospital, um, the people who spoke at the press conference was the just recent Secretary General of the ANC, who I think is a government minister now in the Office of the Presidency, and another senior ANC leader who is also, I think he's also a, a, a senior government minister. They spoke on behalf of, of, of the Mandela family, meaning, you know, the, the, her children, who's been close to her. So the ANC also claims her. I think the ANC in trouble in the in in the in the run-up to 2019, um, where they had sort of like a little boost in terms of their PR with Ramaphosa, who's a you know slightly different figure than Zuma, um, in the way just he carries himself. Um, and he sort of wanted to be seen with Winnie Mandela. And so they also trying to claim uh, uh Winnie Mandela. So so at some level. Yes, I think when you when you ask like you know how has she operated politically, she's you know she she was retired, but she would turn up and be be seen at these events of the Economic Freedom Fund, not 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 like a political rally, but like a like a somebody's party. She would she would sort of make pronouncements um, saying how she remains an ANC member. In the coming years, the with the ANC adrift election coming up, uh, she's going to be what everybody's uh, floating signifier. I think this is this is the problem uh, that we that we're dealing with right now. Well, it's both a problem and I, I suppose it's an opportunity for certain political um, formations. I think for the ANC, she she's going to operate as a as a as a as a you know this kind of like that that Winnie Mandela before 1986, which is which is kind of the golden period of the way the ANC thinks about resistance. And I think rightly so. Uh, if, if for those people making a critique of patriarchy within South African politics, because you know the, the way the, the women are treated within in politics, but also just in like in public life um, and in general in everyday life, uh, Winnie Mandela kind of broke the rules for that, and that's that's laudable. So that that's one other way that she's going to operate as a cipher for the for young people, the the, 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 the what people in South Africa call the woke, the wokesters, they kind of appropriate Winnie Mandela for. For 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 like the kind of ra- you know sort of radicalism that they that they espouse, and this is mostly like a react sometimes a reactionary political movement. It's a reaction uh, they react against white um, kind of right wing white South Africans. This kind of thing in which Winnie Mandela, the only thing that you remember Winnie Mandela for is 1986, but an 80, you know sorry late 80s, and and you don't remember you know what the state did, and you don't remember apartheid. So so for them. Winnie Mandela presents that, and as I said earlier, for the EFF, um, Winnie Mandela becomes like the ANC that was lost, and that the EFF will will recover. So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of fighting over Winnie Mandela's legacy. And I, I the the funeral's coming up on the on the April the 14th, and the ANC they're kind of masters at using these kind of public moments of mourning. They did this with Chris Hani. Right before when they were making deals with the National Party and they used kind of Chris Hani's funeral to like rally the troops ahead of 94 um, in 2013 when Mandela died. This was when Jacob Zuma's approval ratings were like, you know, it was pretty low. The ANC had a very bad reputation. It was mostly the ANC of corruption. Zuma was openly booed at Mandela's memorial. But the sense was, you know, do it last time, do this last time for Mandela. Um, and now with, with with this kind of with, you know they got rid of they got rid of uh, Zuma, and Ramaphosa now is the embodiment of this like we're coming back, and 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 we're coming back because we're coming back and bringing back that legacy of that uncompromising Winnie Mandela. We're gonna attack the issue of land restitution, which is something Winnie Mandela cared about. So for them, this is you know they're gonna appropriate her. There's definitely I can I can see this this I mean you, you to answer your question. 
she's definitely going to be some kind of cipher, like an, an avatar for various kinds of political causes, particularly causes, causes coming from a sort of nationalist, uh, the, the, the kind of nationalist center within the ANC. Um, and at the same time, for those people claiming or, you know, claiming to have the mantle of the left, the EFF, um, the student movement in South Africa. I was Sean Jacobs, a professor of international relations at the New School and founder of the Africa is a Country blog. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Beethoven's Spring Sonata for Violin and Piano, the first movement, performed by Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi. Next, Colombia, which is facing a presidential election at the end of May. Colombia has a long history of intense political violence, including a five-decade guerrilla war led by FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and the brutal repression of any kind of left politics using death squads and mass disappearances. Under the presidency of Alvaro Uribe, who held office from 2002 to 2010, the Army, with the assistance of the U.S. through the Plan Colombia program, instituted by Bill Clinton, launched an intense crackdown on the revolutionaries and on cocaine production. Uribe's successor, Juan Manuel Santos, signed a peace deal with the FARC, which was initially rejected in a referendum, but ultimately closed with legislative approval. What's next? Here's Forrest Tilton who teaches political science at the National University of Colombia in Medellin. His book, Evil Hour in Colombia, was published by Verso in 2006. Forrest Tilton. Colombia is facing an election, presidential election, in a little less than two months. What do things look like going into that? Well, it's interesting. Until March 11th, there was a left-wing candidate who was ahead of any of the other candidates by a decent margin of at least 10 points or so. And it looked as though Colombia was going to have something of a Sanders moment, but it would be slightly different because the left-wing candidate is a former guerrilla who's been uh, a leading senator in Colombia. He has been mayor of Bogota, and he has been really uh, lighting up the public squares across the country in the rallies that he's been holding, and it looked as though the right was really going to be outmaneuvered by this guy on the left. His name is Gustavo Petro. But on March 11th, uh, legislative elections took place and also what would be the equivalent of primaries. The left-wing candidate was able to attract 2.5 million votes uh, in the primaries, uh, which was pretty good and put him in you know, clear poll position as the left-wing candidate. But on the right, uh, Uribe, Alvaro Uribe, former president of Colombia and current senator of Colombia, his candidate, named Iván Duque, got close to 4 million votes. So the right really united around Uribe's candidate and pulled in the conservative party. So now uh, Uribe's candidate, Ivan Duque, has a vice presidential ticket with uh, a conservative uh, vice presidential candidate. And all the pieces are falling into place for right-wing unity, uh, which is not surprising given that the left-wing candidate is genuinely left and independent of any of the traditional party machineries that exist. And in terms of traditional party machineries, there were two parties in Colombia that ran Colombia for 150 years approximately until the rise of Alvaro Uribe as president of Colombia. He came out of the Liberal Party. He was a Liberal Party senator, but he went his own way, formed his own party, and then a whole range of regional parties formed to support Alvaro Uribe as most of these Uribe parties have very direct, direct links to um, paramilitarism and organized crime. So even though the FARC have now demobilized, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia 
are no longer a guerrilla group. They are, in theory now, a political party that does not stop the right wing from running on a, essentially an anti-Venezuela platform uh, and that anything other than a right-wing candidate would lead Colombia down the road to Castro-Chavismo. It's almost surreal to watch right-wing candidates on the, on the campaign trail because mostly what they talk about is Venezuela and, and Castro and Chavez uh, rather than Colombia itself. So that's that's the uh, the primary nature of the right's appeal is this uh, this fear that uh, if the left wins uh, it will turn into a Maduro's uh, Venezuela. When the peace referendum was held back in the fall of 2016, um, everybody of course expected the yes vote to win because everybody assumed that the majority of Colombians, indeed, after you know six decades of civil war, were certainly ready to implement a peace accord. But Alvaro Uribe gathered the right-wing forces and ran a very impressive campaign based on lies and disinformation about what would happen in the event of uh, the peace accords being approved. So that was the first sign that would be back in the fall of 2016 that Alvaro Uribe still was able to command roughly half in the country uh, on any important issue. And so he's proven, well, again, a figure so powerful that he's able to unite the right behind his candidate. And Petro is essentially the perfect foil uh, as an independent leftist who denounced paramilitarism when he was a senator, has said, you know, of course, Chavez was not a dictator and has recently said that he thinks that Maduro is a dictator, but he didn't say it soon enough to suit the Colombian right. So they're still trying to run on essentially a sort of Cold War ideological framework. And because the country right now is flooded with uh, Venezuelan immigrants, right now the Venezuela issue, there's 17,000 army troops massed along the border, and the kind of border situation and the nature of what's happening in Venezuela is really at the center of Colombian electoral politics and the fact that the peace process that was uh, signed, I think, last November, is coming undone at an alarming rate, is, is really not at the center of the, at the campaign uh, agenda. It's really remarkable how long the legs of sort of Cold War ideology are here in Colombia and uh, how closely they're connected to any idea of redistribution of land because it always comes back to that. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't Uribe fighting yesterday's battles? What, what is, how does he uh, translate it into, uh, into the present? There's a threat under the land restitution law. Some of the stolen lands, the lands that were stolen uh, before and after Uribe was president and were legalized uh, by very dubious means, uh, could be returned to their original owners. So that is the, the kind of stick... Um, or the pitchfork that, that Uribe continually wields. Who stole what land from whom? So something like 5 million hectares of land were stolen in the early part of the 20th century, right? So record numbers of displaced people, as well as record numbers of uh, land theft. And those people who stole those lands intend to keep them. And the... Um, People who were displaced from their lands and are trying to return to those lands are being uh, murdered in the past several years, and um, very few of them have been able to get back to their land. But the very existence of such legislation makes it possible to campaign on the idea that the government is about to expropriate a whole bunch of land and give it to the peasants. And recently, Uribe's candidate on the campaign trail said something to this effect, ironically, because, of course, he knows some gesture at least rhetorically, is needed. And he said something to the effect, land should be in the hands of the peasants. You know, I'll take land away from some of these big landlords and give it back to peasants, which is a sign, of course, that, you know, Uribe's candidate, who I think has degrees from Georgetown and Harvard, you know, he's not like Uribe. He's not a right-wing fanatic like Uribe is, and he's, he's quite a bit more moderate, at least at the level of, uh, of rhetoric. So no sooner had he uttered you know, these words to a a gathering of of peasants, then the harder right-wing elements within the campaign came down very hard on Uribe's candidate for mentioning the possibility of land redistribution. So this is is 
pro-chavismo infiltrating our campaign. You know, we can't we can't have any promises for return of stolen lands, you know, regardless of what the law may say. In that sense, the, the hard right-wing bloc that's connected to stolen lands and in many cases organized crime and narco trafficking as well. Well, let's talk some about the, the urban-rural split. You had a paper from a couple of years ago where you uh, noted that the Colombian left had historically focused most of its attention on rural areas and ignored uh, the, the urban proletariat. Uh, is that still the case, and what have the political effects of that been? Well, it seems to be pretty dramatic. The hope was certainly that with the peace process with the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, it would finally be possible to kind of put together a broad left-wing coalition in the cities behind some kind of progressive agenda for so long, any kind of radical pause in the cities has been tarred with the brush of uh, guerrilla sympathy and made it possible for the right to eliminate all kinds of urban activists through extrajudicial execution. And Colombia was, you know, one of the world champions of extrajudicial execution for urban social movement leaders. These days, most of the right's firepower is concentrated against rural social movement leaders, but there have been previous eras, eras in which massacres and selective assassinations of activists were heavily concentrated in the urban areas. So one of the reasons why you don't have a vibrant urban left in Colombia is that it has been sort of physically eliminated in a fairly systematic fashion over the past two decades. But another reason is that sectarianism is really endemic. Um, for a long time, all the sectarian forces on the left assumed that a strategy of guerrilla warfare and some kind of um, siege the cities from the countryside was the way to make revolution in Colombia. So in that sense, rural insurrection was the center of gravity around which Colombian leftist politics pivoted. Broad left politics in the cities for a long time uh, seemed to be impossible, but it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy insofar as strategic energies were focused on rural insurrection and urban areas really abandoned in to uh, the narco-paramilitary right, which found fertile recruiting ground in the urban peripheries of Colombian cities where the majority of Colombians live. You know, it's ultimately about political decisions that were taken about strategy that led to a relative negligence of, of an urban agenda. And the hope was that with the peace process with the FARC, there would then be political space for the construction of that kind of urban left because the right will no longer be able to uh, stigmatize and then execute extrajudicially urban activists that it targeted as guerrilla sympathizers. But in addition to the FARC, there's another guerrilla group, uh, the ELN, um, National Liberation Army, which for a long time was nominally sort of pro-Cuba and then kind of took some pages from the playbook of Central American guerrillas. In any event, the ELN has never really negotiated with the Colombian government and has argued that, you know, it's a mistake to negotiate with the Colombian government because the government will betray all of its commitments. Right now, the ELN and the Colombian government are trying to iron out a ceasefire, and they're discussing the terms of a possible peace accord right now in Ecuador. But in the event that, you know, Santos is on his way out, and it looks like Uribe's right-wing candidate is going to win, and Uribe's candidate has already said if he if he wins, he's going to modify the peace accords so that any FARC leaders who wanted to participate in politics would have to be subjected to some sort of judicial mechanism first. And of course, the terms of the peace accord were that FARC people would be able to do politics without having to be processed through the judicial system first. Well, how has uh, FARC been expressing itself politically? Well, they formed a political party. They are trying to do politics, and I think they picked up a total of 50,000 votes in the legislative elections on March 11th, in contrast to Alvaro Uribe, who as senator picked up 900,000 votes. As a political instance, appeared to be dead in the water. They were guaranteed, uh, I think, a, a total of 10 legislative seats between the Senate and the House and those are guaranteed uh, for, like, the first electoral cycle. But 
in fact, they really weren't allowed to campaign. Organized right-wing mobs attacked them. The guy who negotiated the peace for the FARC and who ran as the FARC's presidential candidates quickly ran into health problems and simply uh, withdrew from the race. So nobody wants to make alliances with the FARC, nobody on the Colombian left, uh, which is notoriously sectarian. So the FARC is very much on its own and really doesn't have much of a chance in politics except in certain localities uh, and maybe a couple regions. But as a political force, it's hard for them, it's hard to imagine them ever breaking out of a kind of regional framework, if that, if they're even able to get beyond the local level. So they were not deeply loved. That's correct. They were, they're widely loathed. And the right-wing demagogues who ran Colombia while he was president were very successful. Um, in fact, Uribe was elected president in part uh, because he and others were able to sell the idea that all of Colombia's major problems could be blamed on the FARC guerrillas. Uribe came to power on the heels of a failed peace process in which uh, you know, he accused the conservative government of giving the guerrillas the keys to the country, and of course he was going to take the country back from the guerrillas. And even though it was President Santos who had been Uribe's defense minister and then succeeded him as president and then quick broke away and showed signs of independence and negotiated uh, a peace deal with the FARC, in fact it was Uribe's military offensive backed by the United States and Plan Colombia that paved the way for the possibility of peace negotiations, and the United States backed Oribe to the hilt in construction of a war machine. Colombia has like 250,000 soldiers. Um, it's the second biggest army in the, in the hemisphere after the United States, thanks largely to Plan Colombia. And then in the wake of sort of military triumphs over the guerrilla, uh, U.S. aid to Colombia has been reoriented toward um, you know, development projects and the like. So to the extent that Santos was able to carry out a peace process and carry out very, very tepid and minor kinds of reforms, um, nevertheless, uh, the continuity between Uribe and Santos is important. There were no changes in sort of major, major economic changes of any kind, the sort of neoliberal extractive economy based on uh, oil, which constitutes 45% of Colombia's exports, and increasingly mining, that is not something that changed under Santos at all. It was, you know, accelerated under Uribe and then continued under Santos. So the political economy remains the same, whatever kind of factional disputes there are at the top between Santos leading the peace process and Uribe leading opposition to the peace process. Um, and it looks like Uribe will be the winner and that what was um, negotiated in Havana and signed uh, in 2017 will be completely undone in 2018. I'm speaking with the political scientist Forrest Hilton, who's based in Medellin, Colombia. What might we expect from a likely right-wing government? What what will it look like? Will it be like Uribe re, uh, returned or um, something different? No, I think it will be very much Uribe returned, and there's still quite a bit left to be done to make the country fully neoliberal, to make it more attractive to uh, foreign investors. Higher education, for example, remains to be privatized. Um, I teach at a public university in which um, students do not pay uh, exorbitant fees. The right-wing candidate would very much like to change that, and certainly with respect to education, the idea is to begin to privatize as much of it as possible. And that certainly goes for uh, primary and secondary school as well as universities. So, you know, more privatization where, where it can be accomplished. Easier terms for mining companies and any of Santos's slightly more progressive measures related to uh, the peace process will be undone as well. So, in a way, it, it will be like Uribe unbound, although it's anyone's guess how well Uribe's candidate can actually govern because levels of inequality, internal displacement, um, you know, the number of, of disappeared people, all of these things are sort of record-setting within Latin American context. And, you know, it's not clear that Uribe's candidate is going to be able to keep a lid on all of the social discontent. It's really just a question of 
which right-wing forces uh, and which coalition ultimately comes to power. But there's no question that Uribe will be in the saddle, and uh, of course he's still senator. He's under investigation for the Supreme by the Supreme Court for um, tampering witnesses, and um, those investigations are ongoing. But it's unlikely to lead to anything as long as he's senator, um, and particularly not if his candidate comes to power. What you describe as the right's agenda doesn't sound like it would be winningly popular. Is it just fear of uh, turning into Venezuela that uh, makes it likely they're going to win? Yes, I think so. I mean, the fear and use of fear has proven to be successful time and again. It's how Alvaro Uribe came to become president in the first place. That's been their tried and true strategy, and really, insofar as the Venezuelan crisis deepens, it's a real gift to the Colombian right. And, of course, insofar as the United States is looking to intervene in Venezuela at some point, should that, should that materialize, there can be little doubt that Colombia will be uh, a major ally or, or you know, the conduit for that sort of intervention. So more and more, I think the campaign will be oriented towards Venezuela, towards the border crisis, towards the need for strong security measures in the wake of FARC demobilization. And ironically, the United States is now taken to um, chastise Colombia because supposedly it's not working hard enough to uh, eradicate coca cultivation. Um, the Obama administration was clear that coca cultivation was going to go up as a result of FARC demobilization, um, but you know Trump's people don't want to hear it. So relations between the United States and Colombia are slightly more tension-filled uh, than normal, and certainly than was ever the case when Uribe and Bush were uh, presidents, respectively. But basically, the idea is to continue with the most vicious form of neoliberalism, certainly to be found, I think, in South America. You have to see, look to Central America or Mexico to find anything equivalent to, uh, to what's happening here. But the great tragedy, of course, is that the, the hopes that with the demobilization of the FARC, it would be possible to finally begin to build an earth that would be um, kind of beyond the stigma of guerrilla politics has not materialized. And to the extent that the ELN still exists and is still active, you know, the right still has uh, a lot of mileage to gain out of Cold War tropes that would have seen, have expired most everywhere else. But as I said, the Venezuelan crisis keeps those tropes alive here in Colombia, as does uh, fear that president is going to, uh, you know, left-wing president would somehow um, ally himself with the FARC and, and, you know, turn it into Venezuela. Uh, I mean, the scenarios are absolutely fantastic. They bear no uh, resemblance to reality. But, you know, that's when media monopolies, media monopolies come into play. This goes back in Colombia's political history, probably to the 1930s, and the Spanish Civil War and the Popular Front and the Popular Front period, in which communists and liberals were allied in favor of, you know, democratic reforms, and the far right made a lot of hay with it, uh, saying that you know liberals were atheists just like communists, and they were opening, you know, ultimately opening the door to to Bolshevism and the destruction of the family. Um, so those tropes haven't really died in Colombia. Um, and part of the way that Uribe won that no vote against the peace process was by convincing people that, in fact, the peace process represented a to uh, traditional family values because it recognized uh, the rights of LBGTQ people uh, as well as gay marriage. So the shadow of liberalism as a Trojan horse for Bolshevism or communism, uh, that trope is alive and well, and Santos is seen very much as a kind of liberal who allowed the Trojan horse of, of communism to, uh, to work its way into Colombian politics. And so it's not only the communists who have to be defeated, it's the, the kind of the liberals who, who prove to be useful idiots for, uh, for the communists who who have to be opposed as well. So this is a strain of, of sort of political intolerance on the Colombian right that goes back to the 1930s and has had incredibly bloody consequences throughout Colombian history. So unfortunately, the types of persecution that take place 
of leftists and, and even moderately progressive people takes place in a, in a very toxic rhetorical environment in which any kind of progressive uh, sympathies or positions is quickly equated with uh, terrorism or guerrilla activity. As far as Tulton, who teaches political science at the National University of Columbia in Medellin. His book, Evil Hour in Columbia, was published by Verso in 2006. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. We're still awaiting the arrival of spring in Brooklyn. It's chilly and there's snow in the forecast. So maybe some more of Beethoven's Spring Sonata will make the weather cooperate. Till next week, bye. <laughs>